1: Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the new College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas.
2: But we're gonna we're setting ourselves a very ambitious task to discuss the new enlightenment. These questions have been philosophically contentious since the dawn of philosophy.
1: This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers take on the ever-present pursuit of ultimate truth.
2: The question of truth, of what it is. Uh, how we notice it, how we we define it, how we recognise it when we see it, does it correspond to the world? All of these are questions which, though he would not phrase it in any of that terminology, are raised by politicians like President Donald Trump, where claims about truth and falsehood are resounding through politics.
1: Is the Enlightenment dream finally over?
2: So I'm sure we'll get into some of that, but underneath all of that lies some really deep philosophical waters.
1: More important now than ever before, can our speakers forge a new enlightenment in a post-truth world? Should we abandon or rally behind the quest for ultimate truth? Taking this on, we have philosopher and author of a short history of truth, Julian Beghini, post-realist philosopher, Hilary Lawson, and metaphysician, Amy Thomason. As ever, please do subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Tell anyone you know that might be interested. And please do give us a rating as this helps other people find the podcast. Back now to Philip Collins, who hosts this week's episode.
2: So let me come to Julian first. Um, Julian, our sort of master question here is what, if anything, should replace the Enlightenment and the, the dream of objective knowledge?
3: Uh, yeah, nothing. There's nothing wrong with it in the first place. It was obviously the beginning of a project uh, which continues. So, obviously, there are things those early Enlightenment philosophers got wrong. But, you know, when I hear people talking about the end of the Enlightenment dream and sort of how, you know, we have to give up on objective knowledge and, and the belief in the human power of reason to understand everything, blah, 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 I'm thinking, well, which, which Enlightenment philosophers are we actually talking about here? I mean, if we remember some of the, the most important. I mean Kant, right? I'm not, I'm not a Kantian, but you know, Kant believed that the, the world in itself was completely unknowable and we can only know the, the, the world of the phenomenal world, as he called it. So it, there's naive realism? Absolutely not, the exact opposite. Hume, I think the greatest Enlightenment philosopher was David Hume. Um, He did not believe that we could even know with any certainty that one thing causes another, even though belief in the power of causation is absolutely fundamental uh, to our understanding of the world and our ability to reason scientifically. He was a deep skeptic about reason. He was reacting against Descartes, and, and particularly Descartes, rationalist philosophers who believe that by the pure power of the intellect alone all of reality would become manifest and certain now that that rationalist dream was dead but it was killed by the enlightenment philosophers right who said that in its place is something much more modest um, empirical knowledge which lacks any kind of absolute certainty whatsoever is absolutely provisional and cannot penetrate until the deepest levels of uh, reality so the, the original enlightenment spirit was entirely right it was deeply skeptical it was deeply humble about the capacities of human knowledge and if some people have taken that legacy and in got an inflated idea of the power of human reason etc etc well that's their problem not the enlightenment so my, so I think it's go back to the founding the best thinkers of the enlightenment continue their projects with with the benefit of contemporary knowledge they didn't have um, so for example I think the greatest thing was the thing that people like human and Kant didn't realize so much was about psychology actually empirical psy- psychology has come along a long way since then so we are much more aware of the very specific ways in which human reason is fallible and distorted and so forth so we,
2: we build on that and that's all part of the enlightenment project okay a stirring defense of a, of a particular brand of enlightenment thought hillary do you want do you Endorse that, or, or I mean, a made for a poor debate if you do. So I'm hoping. Yes, you don't. well,
4: I, actually, unfortunately, uh, there are aspects of that that I am going to agree with. But let me put the counter. So I, I think that the uh, modernist fantasy that we're going, we're gradually uncovering uh, a complete understanding of the world is is over. I don't think that that's going to happen. But I don't think this means that we are at the end of the Enlightenment, or even at the beginning of the end of the Enlightenment although perhaps we're at the end of the beginning of the Enlightenment. (laughs) Um, Why has all of that happened? Uh, Why has this been undermined? Well, I think it's largely about perspectives, and we've become increasingly aware of the importance of cultural, historical perspectives, and, and language, of course, critically language, and indeed even our biology. So there's no Archimedean point from which we can see the world and see it somehow truly. We're stuck with a radically perspectival world, and and that means we're not going to be able to reach through to an ultimate way of holding things. But I don't think that is as serious as some people think, because the real value of the Enlightenment, I think, was in the uh, strategies of observation and reason. And those strategies enable us to refine our models, refine our narratives about the world, and help them to work uh, more effectively to what the goal that they they were designed for, uh, that we wanted for them. Now, one of the things about the attack on, uh, as it were, an ultimate metaphysical reality, w- one person who was key part in helping that was Derrida and postmodernism. But he also attacked reason. Uh, he wrote heavily about logocentrism and saw this as being uh, a Western uh, obsession. Uh, and in that, I think that is misguided. I, I think that the actual uh, strategies of reason and of observation are things that we need to redouble on in a world where there isn't an ultimate reality uh, and where we have to recognize that no one is going to arrive, but we need those strategies to refine our models. Because our our language and our theories about the world are not descriptions of the world. They are tools to enable us to intervene. They're tools to enable us to get things to happen. And we can refine those using those enlightenment notions. But we do have to give up, I think, on the fantasy of the real and the fantasy that there is a truth that we might arrive at at
2: some point. Thank you. Amy.
0: Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so actually, I found quite a bit to agree with in both what Julian and what Hillary said. and Let me try to sort of run between them in, in a way. One thing I want to say first is that I mean, there is something of the Enlightenment that should definitely be preserved. I mean, one of the basic hopes and ideals of the Enlightenment is the idea that the world is, in principle, intelligible through reason and through observation. That it's not the case, that there are our only way of gaining access to the world is through religion, myth, things like that. And that's something that we should absolutely, in my view, hold on to. What I think we should give up on, however, is the idea or the hope that we can get one final statement of what the truth is or how the world is, or that there is, and this is more of a sort of post-enlightenment idea, but it's more common in 20th century philosophy, the idea that there is a sort of perfect language in which one could state all the truths of the world that matches the structure of the world, right? The way I think to capture at least some of the perspectivalism that Hillary was talking about um, is by acknowledging that there's not one perfect language, there's many different languages, thousands of different human languages that we have developed for all sorts of different purposes. I take my point of view largely from Carnap, right, and Carnap sort of nicely observed that he certainly wasn't someone who didn't think we could state truths, but any time you try to state truths or describe the world or whatever, you do so using a language or using a linguistic framework. And there may be, and I think there probably is no one such language in which one could state all truths, different ones may be better for different purposes, and yet within each language, once you've got a linguistic framework set up, a framework in which we speak of visual phenomena, in which we speak of particles, or in which we speak of numbers, right within those frameworks, then things may be true or false. It's objectively true that there are prime numbers between 10 and 20. right? But in order to state that, we have to be using something like the numbers framework. So I don't want to give up on the idea, of truth or objectivity in certain senses. and I'm sure we'll have time later to talk about what senses of those are relevant. There's some that I wanna get away from and some stick to. But what I do want to emphasize is that these kinds of statements can only be made from within a language. There's a multitude of different linguistic frameworks and the standards for objectivity will differ from framework to framework. What it is for it to be an objective mathematical truth is a very different matter than for the judging of your kid's art contest to be objective. Right. Although we could aptly criticise things as being non-objective in either case.
2: Okay. Thank you. Well, let's let's talk about truth straight away. I mean, as I, I was w- as listening to you talk, I thought actually, if you'd seen my children's art homework, you'd realise there is objective truth. There's objectively rubbish. <laughs> um, but I want to get into this question of, of truth now, because the the shelves of the of the bookstores are groaning at the moment with books about post-truth, and I just want to get into this question about Julian you, you've written a, a short history of truth and so can you give us a, a sort of even <laughs> shorter answer <laughs> on whether the idea of post-truth is even meaningful and what what we think we're getting at with that idea
3: yeah I mean I think the idea of post-truth is, is an interesting cultural phenomenon and I don't think it has much to do with the, the deep philosophy of truth to be honest I think that it's more to do with a loss of trust in the sources of truth, and so how you get hold of it, um, most people show no signs of of, of being like postmodernists about truth. Um, for example, in this country, think about the political issue which is most. Uh, galvanized people over recent decades it was the, the response to the absence of wmd in iraq in which people were very very clear that they were told things that were not true and they were very very cross about it right so there's no loss of belief in truth but i think people have a problem in sort of well who can we trust to tell us the truth and the answer is kind of no one and that means it, they're sort of like saying well if you can't trust anyone you just have to go on gut instinct etc etc do, do you think
2: that the the long argument within the academy which hillary Mm. referred to which of which derrida was a central Mm. figure perspectivalism i mean stanley fish Mm -hmm. isn't here but that that thesis too has been part of an assault on capitalized t truth which has this consequence in politics
3: um well i I, I i don't know how much blame to attribute to be honest these things are very complicated but it was very interesting that bruno latour wrote a kind of a mea culpa a few years ago in which he he didn't sort of like retract what he was doing but he kind of acknowledged that his kind of uh, desire to problematize certain things around scientific truth, and you know a lot of the things around that were kind of well motivated and true. So, for example, the idea that what is taken to be true is often actually a, a result of power structures—it's not actually to do. And a lot of these things were true. So, in a lot of these things, these postmodernist thinkers who are often sort of vilified by um, sort of philosophers of my ilk. Um, we're getting at, they, they had a very good point, but it did sort of like contribute to this culture of mistrust. And this culture in which people basically go, yeah, so there's no real truth, is there? So I, I don't, I don't want to say, oh, it's all the postmodernists fault. I mean, they, they are part of a culture. But I think there was a certain overzealous attack. Inter- the interesting thing, of course, is that a lot of those people were attacking truth because they believed it was part of a kind of emancipatory uh, agenda, that by attacking truth, you, were, you were, in, in the old school sense, you were attacking the traditional sources of power that kept the weak, etc. Um, oppressed. They would have been horrified to realise that now the greatest person using post-truth ideas are actually reactionary forces who are saying that because there's no such thing as scientific truth, etc., etc., therefore let's revert to tribalism and nativism
2: and all these kind of things. Uh, Hillary, can I ask you? I think we're all you're all agreed that there's no single the Archimedean point that you put it. There's no truth with the capital T which overrides everything else. There are perspectives and there are truths within systems. But how do we adjudicate between? competing claims within a system? How do we come to a judgment of truth and that doesn't just go into an infinite regress of that's just my perspective that's just yours?
4: Lots of people want to have it both ways because it's intellectually tough so, so, so yeah, it's, it's true this perspectival thing makes things a bit difficult but you know we, we want to have some notion of objectivity Um, Or or, uh, Or perhaps superiority, if not objectivity. Indeed. So I I would take a radical attack on truth. I think we just have to give up on the fantasy that we can describe how things uh, are. We we can describe reality uh, in much the same way as the Enlightenment itself got rid of the religious uh, belief that somehow um, uh, it was uh, God was the person who decided what was going on. We just gave up on God. I think we have to give up on our God, which is reality and truth. But that doesn't mean to say that we can't make progress with our uh, narratives and what I would call closures in terms of creating. Uh, better accounts of the world that enable us to achieve things. When and when you say how do account, we. What does that mean? Well, it means it, it, it's it Doesn't in the correspond cont- more
2: to the world, does it? Well,
4: no, I, it's, I don't think there's anything to do with corresponding to the world. I think it's to do with how we want to intervene. So if we want to intervene and uh, make a fire in here, it's quite a good way to think of this as firewood. And you can dump the table. That's a useful way of, 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 of using this thing. And so the model that we use. The closure that we use enables us to do things and indeed we we can refine each one of those closures to make the achievement of the particular goal more achievable. Um, I don't think that any one of them is like the correct one because I don't think that's what's going on in the relationship between language and words and the world. It's not a description, it's a tool to enable us to do something, to get something to happen, and we can employ those good enlightenment values, as I say, of observation, looking to see, does this closure work? Does this way of holding the world work? And if it doesn't, modify it, change it. But don't imagine that your description is somehow
2: reaching through to how things ultimately are. Right. Amy, Do you, the same, I'm, I'm interested in the same thought, really. Well, between the many different ways of conceptualizing the world, how, people who are not philosophers find this very difficult. And this is the confusion they get into with relativism. The, the supposition that relativism means anything goes. When, of course, it doesn't mean that. It's about the grounds on which we make arguments. But how do we adjudicate between competing views. One option is power, simply power relations adjudicate between views, but that doesn't strike me as a very liberal and, and good one.
0: Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think as Julian was saying, a lot of the critiques of truth were built on this sort of nice observation that what gets counted as truth, what passes for truth, is often based on power. How do or should we adjudicate between systems? I mean, sometimes we don't have to, right? When different conceptual schemes have different functions, we don't have to say who is right, the art historian or the physicist, right? They're doing different things. They have different conceptual schemes for different goals. Um, It might be at least one way to do this and um, is to appeal to certain functions. What are we trying to do with our system, right? Suppose that the... um, the goal of the psychiatrists writing the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, right? which have an enormous amount of power. Uh, suppose that the goal of this work is supposed to be to categorize mental illness in a way that can lead to changes in diagnosis and treatment that will improve people's lives. Right? If that's the accepted goal, then how can we internally critique different ways in which this... And they really are developing a conceptual scheme. They invent new terms every time they meet, right? How can we adjudicate among them? Well, the way to adjudicate among them, at least to a large extent, has got to be, is it serving this goal properly, this goal we can agree on? If instead, if I'm on the panel for the DSM and I take a bribe from an insurance company to have a bunch of conditions unlisted, no longer conceptualized as categories of mental illness so that they won't have to pay for the treatments, I'm in the U.S., so I have to worry about insurance, right? Um, then I can be legitimately criticized. I'm undermining that goal. Similarly in the sciences, right? if the goal of say, biology involves better explanation and prediction, we can't think of it as a kind of tool in this way, right? then if we can see certain theories in biology as implicitly driven by racist or sexist assumptions in ways that are taking us away from that goal, it can be criticized. Right? Mm-hmm. So this is a way of trying to say how su- conceptual schemes can be better or worse, how theories can be better or worse, that doesn't rely on saying, flat-footedly, oh, they do or don't sort of correspond to reality, Mm. but rather saying we're going to appeal to the function and some things are going to function better than others. Yeah, just
3: briefly, because I think what Amy says is exactly right, and I think it answers Hillary's um, concern that there's a kind of fudging, because what Amy says doesn't require you to believe in this ultimate truth beyond all schemes, but it allows for an an idea of objectivity which makes sense. These things are objective to the extent that whether they are true or false or not depends on things which are independent of our willing or desiring or our imagination. So, yeah. I mean, the actually idea is a good example because that's very clearly a humanly constructive schema. I mean, the idea that, you know, there's, there are natural kinds of mental disorders is, is deeply problematic. But the degree of objectivity is there is if you get those things badly wrong, what you're going to discover is you're going to be, you actually will be unable to treat people, you'll be doing unhelpful things, etc., etc so the degree of objectivity is a, and it's always degree that's the point it's not objective or subjective mm-hmm. things are more objective in the sense that they are yeah we answer to them rather than they answer to us I'd put
4: it that way
2: do you think that's a well, retort you can accept I wouldn't quite choose this
4: vocabulary of objective and subjective because it seems to me that introducing the objective is trying to end the conversation it's trying to say I've got it right guys this is objective and I just don't feel very comfortable with that. I think that we it's would be better. It's just objective
2: within a defined system, isn't it? Well, it's, it's no more than two plus two well equals uh, four, rather than five. So,
4: so two plus two equals four within certain sorts of sure. definitions of addition, uh, of the mathematical of frame of whatever it is. There are there. there, there I are don't think
2: they're disputing that, though. Are n- they? No,
4: no, but 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 the. I would feel more comfortable if we say, according to this mathematical logic, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Let's not say 2 plus 2 always equals 4. I mean, people thought that about Euclidean geometry. We thought Euclidean geometry was correct. Then along came Lobachevsky with different axioms. It turned out to be very useful. Is Lobachevsky right that parallel lines cross? Or is Euclid right that parallel lines don't ever cross? The answer is that neither is right. They are different frameworks and those different frameworks can be used in different circumstances to have outcomes and so I think there's the, the sort of gradual reintroduction of objectivity to try and somehow silence uh, someone who wants to say no actually I think that this could be held differently I'm a bit suspicious of but I do absolutely want to be systematic and rationalist and Uh, observational, empiricist if you like, about the application of the model. So yes, you should get in there, but you should never think that there's no room for manoeuvre. You can always, even within the model, you can always come up with a different way of making that particular move, providing it in a different way. And it seems to me having the potential of holding uh, the world in different ways to achieve different things is an exciting, open, challenging thing rather than something we should be scared of and that we have to wrap ourselves in, no, there's a right.
3: Yeah, but the problem isn't with the term objective as such. It's a, it's a problem of one of two things. One, if you take objective to mean final, absolute, and if we have an idea of greater or less objectivity, you don't have that. Or it's a problem if you're simply, it's nothing to do with the term, it's whether you're just dogmatic. It's whether you mm-hmm. believe in objective and you dogmatically believe you got there. If you don't have the dogmatism and you don't have the an unrealistic idea of objectives as the ultimate, then that thing doesn't, then the, those, those objections are agreed. So, w- so w- it's a question not? of, so you say, you, say you, no, you no. answer, you started by saying, I prefer mm. not to use that terminology. And I can mm. see you. I prefer not to use that terminology because you think using that terminology tends to lead towards that kind of rigidity and dogmatism. But it doesn't inevitably do so. And I'd rather sort, of like try and get people to understand objectivity better in a way that doesn't lead to those outcomes and just jettison it all together because the other, the consequence of jettisoning it all together is people end up saying, oh, well, nothing's objective, it's all just a matter of opinion. Yes. And you know. So
4: in which case, in that sense, I think we are both agreed on the, the goal, mm. which is I don't want people to give up the idea of it needs to work. Do you want to just finish off that Yeah, can I off off
0: coming on session? this point a bit? Um Yes, it seems to be what we're involved in here is an interesting kind of conceptual negotiation about whether we should use the term objectivity. And for that, I think we have to observe what it has been used for and what it can be used for. And you each identify things that it has been used for. In some cases, it's used as a bludgeon to sort of try to silence other people's voices and perspectives, as it's been used often against women's experience throughout history. All that's just subjective, right? But it also can be used, and has been, as Julian points out, used as this kind of useful ideal of ways in which we don't let the irrelevant come into our judgments, right? And for that, it can be a useful idea. And it can be a useful idea that's upheld even in what's explicitly a human system. I mean, there's objective facts about what are the next possible moves in a chess game, even though we set the rules for that, right? It doesn't matter what I want to do, right? So I think in trying to make this kind of conceptual choice, we have to be attentive to both the hazard of it being used as a bludgeon, but also the use of it being a sort of ideal, a regulative ideal that can govern our practices.
2: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news, and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay. So subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. One way in which that is being questioned at the moment in contemporary uh, politics is the, the questioning of the rules of the game by the sentiments and the passions and the feelings. And all of these things are now being invoked as the, r- the reason I want to do that is just because I feel that way. Uh, and that is overrides the, the claim of Reason in politics. So I just want to go into the and how we get to these judgments. That that it strikes me that in current politics, uh, there's an awful lot of passion. Doesn't sound quite quite the right word, but you know what I mean. Yeah, Um, the passions rather than reason.
0: One of the worrying things, and one of the reasons there's these sort of marches for science and so on in this sort of post-truth world, is that sometimes politicians, I won't name names, will sort of exploit these doubts. About truth, say for global warming or we climate change. We can't imagine
2: change. who you're talking
0: about. No, no. <laughs> um, so consider climate change, right? I mean, this is a scientific hypothesis. So the proper standards for this, to come back to my sort of earlier approach, have to do with empirical evidence, right? But then, when people are making judgments about pl- climate change that are based largely on their feelings or their desires to keep their oil companies making big profits and so on, then they want to say, oh, yeah, look, it's just based on feeling. It's my perspective, but everything's just perspective. But I think that's where it's important to come back, where a sense of objectivity, like Julian's talking about, is really critical to say, no, look, there are standards here. This is a scientific claim. And here bringing in the passions or the self-interest or whatever is really inappropriate, and we've got to rule that out. And to me, that's a real proper use of objective.
2: Julian, do you, do you worry about what the, the trends in, in, our, in our current public realm to the, the invocation of this is my sentiment, this is how I feel, which is changing um, the nature of our politics.
3: Yeah, I think so. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons this, the many reasons behind it, but I, I think one of the unhelpful ways in which the kind of enlightenment in its popular understanding has gone has been a kind of a division between reason and emotion, that somehow they are utterly, utterly separate and have kind of nothing to do with it so like I mean Bertrand Russell interestingly autobiographically Bertrand Russell sort of like seemed to believe that anything involved his feelings was basically beyond all Rational discussion. So uh, you know, if he woke up one morning and decided that he sort of like fallen out with one woman is in love with another woman, that was it. Nothing could be done. End of it. You know. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's I a his usual strategy was then to start going out with both of them. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> whatever it might be. You know, there's there's reason, there's emotion, uh, and never the twain shall meet. And I think in all practical matters, uh, and this is particularly for politics and society, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that there there are there are elements of I- emotion and. Uh, vitally important in 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 the key sense i think that you can't actually i mean i would go with david hume again that you can't Mm. actually have any kind of morality at all without it being based upon some principle of human sympathy you know pure reason alone doesn't give you any ought about what you should do to people so you know it's i I think that the the, that's the closing out of emotion is oh we're not going to talk about that hasn't been unhelpful um, but at the same time you know you go the other extreme you can't just be led by your feelings when it comes to important political decisions because that doesn't tell you what the consequences of things will be and so yeah you you, you have to worry about that the sa- but at the same time again one has to sort of like listen to these things when when there is an emotional response in uh, politics it's not helpful to say they're people just being emotional why are they being emotional you know uh, so in, in, in brexit for example why did people strongly feel that they wanted to reclaim their sovereignty etc etc well for some reason they were feeling alienated from power they were feeling like they won't be listened to and so forth and those feelings often are you know because emotions usually entail judgments implicitly you feel something partly because you're judging something to be the case you're feeling resentful because you're judging that you're being mistreated so you know it, it, we have to sort of join up it's these not, things a lot radically
2: more radically disconnected yeah yeah you've got to kind of like see what arguments that you might make as well yeah 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 it? yeah
4: yeah hillary uh, yeah go ahead. yeah i would say well if that's not i think it is very dangerous uh, and that's why i what i began by saying uh, i think we have to reinforce uh, our, our engagement with reason and with empiricism, and I do think the current situation is exceptionally dangerous in that way, because in response to this perspecti- uh, perspectivism, as it were, which every child, you know, you only got to go onto the internet, and in no, time, of course you're going to think the world's perspectives, because that's what you see, just you see thousands of them, um, and so the idea that one of them might be right is just self-evidently ludicrous. It, it's not, it's not going to be plausible, but there is a risk that that recognition, the perspectival attack on some sort of ultimate reality, instead of coming to the conclusion, oh, they, we've got to give up on reality and truth, what, what happens is people give up on reason and empiricism.
2: Well, we, we've, we've, managed, we've managed to segue very neatly into our final uh, set of questions, which is about the new enlightenment. Let's look forward a bit, let's just think, how, how would we like things to develop? And, and the connection between what's going to happen philosophically in, in this question and how we're going to translate that into, into public argument. I mean, Julian, you, you started by trying to recuperate and mm. retrieve um, the best mm. uh, of the Enlightenment. How, how do you think we're doing?
3: Oh, uh, um, well, okay, mixed, mixed picture, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think, could, I mean, but I think, better. yeah, okay, I think I'm gonna, so, so, look, I mean, we have to sort of really reclaim reason. Reason has been made a kind of a bogeyman as kind of like cold, hard rationality being opposed to everything else. And actually it isn't. And actually initially earlier on we were talking about the belief in an a, in, in absolute reality right um, that belief is in no way tied to commitments about reason because if you go to like certain strands of indian uh, philosophy in particular and also some you find in in, in china japan east asia there are there are tr- philosophical traditions who believe that, the, that there is, you can know ultimate reality it's nothing to do with reason it's about cultivating sort of you know skills to be able to see directly and have that direct experience so belief in the illusion that we can see ultimate reality is in no way tied to belief in the power of reason, it's a contingent thing. So I think what the the, the key thing is to recover the best Enlightenment's uh, ideals of scepticism and modesty. Actually, it's the idea that reason is a very very powerful tool, but only when we are as a really aware of its limitations. So it's that really a properly sceptical and open-minded
2: and modest conception of reason. Will take us a hell of a long way. Uh, Amy, I'm struck as Julian's talking by a, a lovely remark of Camus, which is that democracy is the, sub- is the best system for people who know that they don't know everything. Mm-hmm. Now that strikes me as the institutional setting for these sorts of arguments, and it doesn't this lead us politically to a really resilient defence of liberal democracies?
0: Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think, yes, provided they're combined with a good educational system. An educational system that can train people in critical thinking, in so that's in reason, in understanding empirical research and how it is done and how it ought to be done and what kind of knowledge it can give us. I mean, what I worry about is when you get a democracy that then people in power undermine the educational system, undermine educational funding, as happens all over the U.S., certainly.
2: And they Um, undermine truth.
0: Yes, and uh, these come together, right? Then you end up with a democracy that's just a kind of knee-jerk first thing in my head or based on my feelings, not based on a kind of balance of perspectives and knowledge and ideas that should be the ideal of democracy.
2: I'm interested, Harry. Do you not think a, a functioning liberal democracy needs a kind of body of public truths agreed set of propositions without which it's actually very difficult to engage in those sorts of public arguments at all. The radical perspectivalism leads to a difficulty of public argument, doesn't it?
4: Well, I think you're certainly right that an agreed framework um, is necessary in order to get liberal democracy off the ground. Mm. And if you allow, well, you can't not allow, but if, if you don't have that Overall agreement, then. Um, and it's the only it, system it, it that it allows
2: is, provisional truth, isn't it? It, 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 it? It's founded on it, the provisional it, it is, nature of truth. Isn't yes, it? although I would,
4: I would slightly counsel about being too confident about we just get liberal democracy and it'll all be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, democracy voted in Hitler, and uh, there's no guarantee that uh, you give people uh, votes and they will vote as yeah. you would like them to vote. Uh, So I think we just have to recognize that 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 is a weakness of democracy Mm. rather than just think, oh, there's a right way to do it. Because the wrong perspectives take power. Well, uh, wrong, you know, there are are, people... It's obviously a propagation. The (laughs) the people with those perspectives obviously think they are the right perspectives. And, and And the temptation to just think that, well, it's very straightforward, they're wrong, I don't think is a very good way to engage and change their, their point of view, Ultimately, to actually engage in the in the sure. uh, that. That might, be, that might that. be
2: a strategy of argument to persuade them, but that's different from the question of whether you think that, in the end, what they said is true or isn't true. Because well, you do, in the end, think, no, that just isn't true. No, I,
4: I'm sorry, I think that's part of the religious fantasy that there is an ultimate uh, stuff out there which validates our, our outlook.
3: There's a sort of choice between saying, no, I'm just right, or doing that. The point is you're going through that complicated procedure of showing why, for example, the denial of climate change is leading to disaster. It seems that holding off from uh, adding the point there and so clearly the point of view you've got is wrong is sort of like just trying too hard to avoid using the language of truth. The reason why the whole climate change perspective is incoherent is because it is False in a meaningful and important way, it's not. And you don't need to have, you know, you can say that without having to have a commitment to the view that we can understand, you know, ultimate reality independent of human experience or language. That is, you, that is
2: not at all entailed by saying that is yeah. false. It's like the, the argument that historians have, which is there are limitations put around what it, what does or does not count as a historical mm. fact, difficult as they are to unearth. Mm. By the fact of what did in fact happen. Yes. So, so that, that it's not the same for the philosopher as the historian. And that's that's in the example of the Holocaust denial. That surely this is a historical thing to which we are referring, for which there are some limitations around. Amy, do you, do you yeah, agree? Yeah, I agree.
0: I agree with what you just said. Yeah, I mean, I think between us and the Holocaust deniers, there's still a lot we share. And one thing we share is a language, or even if I speak English and they speak Russian or something like that, the capability of translating um, what's important here. And the thing is that this language sets up rules under which, that set up under what conditions it is true that people were sent to gas chambers. Um, And we have, certainly there are people who lived through it and had all the direct evidence in the world, and we have all the historical evidence in the world now to confirm that the conditions that it takes for that to be true using the language that we share here are met.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm sorry we've run out of time. Yes, yeah, please do join
1: us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. This podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Arts and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and I guess this week were Julian Beghini, Hilary Lawson, and Amy Thomason. Please do subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode, tell anyone you know that might be interested and of course tune in next week for more debates and interviews with the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.